Welcome to the Exponential Podcast. My name is Peyton Jones, and as Exponential's content director, I'll be your guide through the curation of the world's largest multiplication library of resources and training. We currently have four shows running Monday through Thursday, each with a different thrust towards accelerating multiplication. On Monday, join us for front lines tackling current issues facing pastors and planners. On Tuesday, tune in for Biblically Speaking, Theological Foundations for Transformative Race Conversations. On Wednesdays, Ralph Moorhead's Practical Multiplication, A Pastor's Guide to Accelerating Multiplication. And lastly, Candid Conversations is on Thursday, Unpacking Definitions of Diversity. Be sure to catch them all as they will serve as equipping companions on your discipleship journey towards multiplication. Today, we'll be catching up with Todd Wilson and Grant Skeldon on Candid Conversations. The Candid Conversation Show is intended to help leaders engage in conversations about diversity in a healthy way. Each show focuses on a topic and helps participants unpack what that topic is, why it's divisive, and what can be done to promote both change and unity. Let's join Todd and his co-host for today's episode of Candid Conversations. Hey, I want to welcome everybody to another edition of Candid Conversations. I am uh, thrilled today to have with me my co-host, Grant Skelton, and our special guest today, Matt Chandler. Uh, great to have you guys today. And always, you got two guys from Dallas here. What are you going to do about that? <laughs> you know, it. it uh, Dallas is sort of a home away from home for me, so I guess it's okay. Yeah. And uh, it is a problem that central time zone thing going on sometimes gets confused. And uh, Grant, Grant, you know, he, he's pretty good with time. So we'll, yeah. uh, good. I'm actually moving to Nashville, which is insane, but okay. that's crazy. Yeah. Finally heading out, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Get well, married. Well, that'll do it. That'll move a brother out. So, <laughs> well, congrats on that, man. I'll, uh, I'll make sure we connect while I'm up there. Awesome. So. Awesome. Well, Matt, uh, as most of our listeners know, uh, Matt is the lead pastor at the Village Church uh, in Flower Mound outside the, the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Uh, Matt has been uh, a personal friend for years and uh, a huge friend of Exponential. I think I, I haven't gone back to count, Matt, but there is a chance that you've done more main stage talks at Exponential than any other speaker that we have at Exponential. Oh, I, I've wow. got to go back and look, but I think that's a possibility, actually. Well, that... That sounds awesome. I, I remember, I think probably my favorite memory is when I was, uh, gosh, I was still taking chemo and you guys did the Stairway to Heaven um, rendition right before I came up to preach. And so that's probably one of my favorite memories from Exponential. It, it, yes and amen to all the people that we were able to pray over uh, and anoint and launch out into gospel ministry. But that in particular was just, I just thought it was unbelievably courageous on y'all's part and hilarious. And uh, sometimes I just hop on uh, YouTube and watch that again if I'm feeling melancholy. You know, one of my, my favorite stories, and it goes to show how many closing keynotes you've done. Um, one of the years you did the closing, Ryan Kwan, who's oh, yeah. part of Acts 29 with you, Ryan was sitting up in the balcony, uh, not yet even knowing he was going to plant the church. And he got that conviction to come forward and uh, you prayed over him yep. uh, at the closing, and within a couple of years of that, he brought his first church planter right. back and uh, had his first church planter go forward. And I believe you got to pray over his yeah. first church planter. Absolutely. And then Ryan's become a great friend. I was just hanging out with him in California uh, two weeks ago. And so, yeah, that's a great story. And then Joby Martin was one of those uh, at Church of 1122 uh, in in Jacksonville. Again, the, the number of just ferocious men and women of God that were launched out in those last sessions is just, it's blown my mind for a decade. Well, we're really grateful for you and just the commitment you've got to church planters and the work you do with Acts 29. And uh, I'm personally uh, really thankful for the model you set just with balance in your life. And I know a talk that you did that uh, Grant and I were on a Zoom call not too long ago where you were just talking about the rhythm in life and how you build in margin after every meeting and call to debrief and listen to God and stuff. So I, I appreciate both the, the work you're doing, but the work you do of becoming more like Jesus and how that models for the rest of us. So thank you. 
Well, I appreciate that. That is the work. So, <laughs> good, good. Well, Matt, um, kind of going into the topic, as uh, some of the listeners, you guys know, the topic for today is white privilege. And uh, I think that's got to be one of the most uh, trigger words when it comes to this conversation. Sure. Um, and I know I want to ask you to define it before that. Um, I would love to hear just a little bit, maybe if you share some story behind um, maybe a little bit of your upbringing and even God putting you in a position to um, be a voice, be an advocate, be a bridge builder. I remember, uh, I don't know if you remember this, that I saw it and we spoke at an event in Dallas, but there's a lot of conferences in Dallas. So literally it was one event one day and then it was the, I think it was together. And then it was right now conference the next yeah. day and we saw each other and I, I've meant to ask you that together, but then I asked you it right now because basically I asked you, hey, did you grow up with uh, strong and frequent relationships with African-American yeah. people? Because like I said, I found that a lot of white leaders that are um, very intentional about using their voice, their platform, um, the organization for diversity and for that uh, tend to have, it's not just the theological bent and seeing it in the scriptures, it's also just very personal is that they had relationships when they were yeah. younger. Um, so it's personal and a theological yeah. uh, persuasion. And so you were kind of, I don't know if you remember what you said, but you're like, bro, yeah. like most of my school was, at, was black. And yeah. so maybe if you wouldn't mind sharing like, yeah, just a little bit of your upbringing, your story, and then how God's used that today. Yeah, and I, and I think I can even dovetail that into privilege uh, if it serves the conversation. So, yeah. uh, so Daddy was a Navy man, uh, and so we grew up uh, predominantly West Coast, um, and then were transferred um, to Texas. Um, and there's a Coast Guard Marine base on Galveston Island, uh, and so we were stationed outside of that. It's the first time in my life that we lived off base. Uh, and so we bought, uh, my parents bought a little house in, uh, the Texas city Lamarck area, uh, which is a very blue collar, uh, part of that area. Um, they're refinery workers and, um, yep. the, the makeup of that socioeconomically, um, wasn't, wasn't below the poverty line, but, but everybody there was try they were fighting to make ends meet. Yes. Uh, I, I didn't know too many people that, um, came from homes where only one parent worked. Uh, so almost everybody I knew growing up there, um, both parents worked to try to make ends meet. They didn't both work uh, in order uh, for you to have a nice car. They, they both worked so that you could eat and have clothes. Um, and so that was kind of the environment I grew up in. It was a primary, primarily African-American environment. Uh, the, the path that people would take is if um, they worked their way in the refineries up to upper level management. Uh, they would move north to Clear Lake or Clear, or Clear Creek, uh, which were more affluent suburbs uh, in the Houston area uh, that were predominantly white, not completely white, but predominantly white. Um, and so my dad was just a petty officer in uh, the Navy and then the Coast Guard. Um, and so we were like, I, I was poor white trash. And, and if you talk about privilege, um, specifically around white people, the frustration is going to be, and it's going to come a lot of times from people who grew up like I did, where you, your house got repossessed. And uh, sometimes you didn't make, you barely made ends meet and your meals were like macaroni and cheese and hamburger meat because that's what your parents could afford or uh, that you had government peanut butter uh, and you didn't have the Jif Crunch. It, and so... When you start talking about privilege to someone um, that, that had my background, uh, I could get pretty offended by that pretty quick simply because um, I knew what it was like to be um, poor white trash. And, and so for you to say that I had some kind of special privilege um, when I was growing up would be stunningly offensive to me. Um, and so it took a while, even in my own life, to, to realize that, that even though that was my background and there was a socioeconomic privilege that, that I was not walking in, that there was an, there was an extra layer of, um, uh, of not having the advantage or not having the special right or even a, a certain level of immunity uh, that I was granted, uh, even being poor white trash that some of my African-American friends uh, didn't get. Um, and so having experienced, and, and here's where I'll try to help uh, people having experienced um, the back end 
of privilege via uh, affluent uh, whites, African-Americans, the, the affluent sector uh, of the town I was in, uh, I can now, having walked in that environment, knowing that, that there was a benefit of the doubt I was not given as poor white trash, that, that say um, Leanne and her doctor daddy with her brand new car when she turned 16, what was given. So, so if, I, if I got caught with weed, you know, let's call the police, but if she gets caught with, with weed, man, this is a mistake. Uh, how do we help her succeed? How, so, so like, I, you know, that, that's how I'm experiencing it. And, and what it took me a while to get um, was that on top of the socioeconomic privilege uh, that I was on the back end of the blade on, that there was another kind of privilege that I possessed, even as poor white trash, that, that my, um, that, that my uh, poor African-American friends would get even less. They, they had a, a more brutal back edge on the privilege than say I did as poor white trash. And, and then now uh, I'm not in that tax bracket anymore. I'm in that kind of middle class, maybe even upper middle class um, in, environment as a white man. Uh, I still have a kind of privilege in that there are immunities I'm granted because of where I am socially, immunity granted to me uh, because of uh, my ethnicity. And then I do have some, some ways that I don't have to ever think or I don't have to worry or I don't have to wrestle, I don't have to figure out uh, because of my ethnicity that my um, black brothers and sisters in this socioeconomic climate uh, still don't. They still have to wrestle with. Like if someone's staring at me and following me around Target, I, I don't have to wonder if they're doing that um, because they're scared of white people or not used to white people or they're, but, I, but I'm telling you, I've got multiple very successful African-American men and women in my life who, who when they get followed around Target, they, sure, it might be circumstance, you know, it might be some sort of fluky thing, but they've got to wrestle that to the ground in their mind. Yeah. I don't ever have to. Most of them, I feel like I'm being followed around Target. I think, oh gosh, they go to our church or man, this is a podcast or they watch it right yeah. now, you know, Bible study or, but man, I, I literally left uh, a meeting uh, with one of our leaders in our church who's African-American and they, they have to talk to themselves constantly uh, about why the, the person is staring at them or why the person is following them around or why it's taking them longer to get their seat at the packed restaurant or why. And, and maybe there's a good reason for all of that. The reality is I have the privilege to never think that way. They have to wrestle it because of their experience. Um, and, and so that's how I've watched the privilege dynamic play out. I have been on the back edge of the, the idea of privilege and have experienced what it's like to not have any and I've also experienced both in not having any, seeing that there's actually a step below mine as poor white trash. And, and then I've had the, the privilege in an environment where still the socioeconomic privilege is the same, but, but there's something about the ethnicity that's making things more difficult uh, for my brothers and sisters of color. Matt, let's, um, let's pretend for a minute that privilege is we're in a laboratory we're studying this thing privilege in a laboratory we've got an experiment where we, somehow we can look at it from different dimensions and pick it up and turn it around um what if you were doing that looking at it in a laboratory what how would you describe it what's the definition or what characteristics would you give it yeah. As you're trying, somebody who has no idea what it is, and you're describing it in a laboratory, what is it? Yeah, I think there, the two words that I would go with is advantage and immunity. And so if I have privilege, I have some kind of advantage. And so maybe that advantage is economic. Maybe that advantage is, um, maybe it's not economic at all. Maybe it's, you know who my dad is. Or uh, maybe the advantage is that, that I'm in a predominantly white area and I have white skin. And, or it could be an immunity. Uh, it could mean that I am given the benefit of the doubt more than someone else. It's that um, my mistake is viewed through a different lens than maybe somebody else's mistake. And again, this could be socioeconomic. It, it could be, um, it could have to do with ethnicity. It could do with education. It could do, I mean, there are privilege in every direction. Um, and so, but I think regardless of what the word in front or behind a privilege is, 
it always has to do with either an advantage uh, or an immunity granted or available to the person because of whatever the word, uh, the descriptive word around privilege is. And then would it, Grant, just one quick follow-up on that. So would it also, I guess you could go the other direction with it too, from rather than advantage, disadvantage, and then rather than immunity, I guess the opposite of immunity, you know, susceptibility to certain things. So it's exactly right. Going both directions. Our mutual friend, Leon's Crump. Leon's is going to be on next week on the Candid Conversations. Uh, And He's going to be talking about the idea of disproportionate. That, and so I, it, it's almost as if this definition you're giving an advantage, immunity, or disadvantage and susceptibility, there's a disproportionate application of, of things kind of thing that, that would be. Yeah, I, yeah you're awesome. talking about then how that privilege plays itself out, right, in the disproportionate responses. Right. Or, so, so you might, on a positive sense, be, because of privilege, be given a disproportionate um, benefit of the doubt or uh, a disproportionate um, advantage in regards to some opportunity or or the opposite, right? It might be the same mistake or the same issue and and you get um, far less or far harsher or a door closed in your face or so it it does work in both directions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Matt, would you, if you wouldn't, if you'd be okay with sharing, who would, uh, who has God used the most, uh, like through personal friendship, to show you, uh, even maybe recently, or, uh, yeah, just what privilege looks like? Whether they're sharing, like, hey, this is what it's like for me, and this is what it might look like for you. Who um, has been that for you? Yeah, what I want to try to do on this issue is I, I want to be passionately local. Um, and, and what I mean by that is uh, I want to learn these things from the brothers and sisters who are in the trench with me fighting the good fight to look like the people of God. Um, and so although I think there are ample opportunities on the Internet to learn um, from all sorts of different people, um, Sten Mathai uh, would be one that nobody on this call knows unless you're in the tech world. Um, and another would be Michael Morris. Uh, and those are two guys locally who I've tried to learn a ton from. Um, Elizabeth Woodson's on our staff, and I've tried yeah. to have conversations with her. Um, and so what I have found is that that some of these things are highly contextualized. And, and if you start, um, and, and you see this when you start talking about race, all of a sudden one white guy gets to speak for all white people and one black guy speaking for all black people. <laughs> and that's just the most unhelpful thing imaginable. And so what I'm trying to do is in my local context, how can I learn how this idea and concept plays out? Uh, does it play out? How does it play out? How should I address it in my local context? And, and that I think gets, um, the, it, it gets me to, to being faithful where I am in regards to shepherding the people that God's given me to shepherd. I don't feel the pressure to shepherd evangelical Western evangelicalism. Um, I, I don't, I don't have that bandwidth. I don't have that thick a skin, uh, nor do I have that kind of ambition. Uh, but God's given me, um, by his grace, leadership at the Village Church. And so what I'm trying to do is the best I can. And it's messy and imperfect. And I've got plenty of regrets. Uh, and I've said things, I've taken things too far before. And then I've regretted not saying enough. And, uh, and they have been gracious enough to let me fail like that and, and strive towards um, what the Apostle Paul said Jesus bought for us in Ephesians 2. Yeah. Uh, Todd, if I can ask real quick, uh, if you wouldn't mind, just with a lot of the audience being pastors, um, so many pastors can often be like, man, this is such a hard conversation. It's so complex. There's so many landmines. Um, and there's so many good intention pastors that are just trying to figure it out. And I, I love that you kind of share even how you're sometimes stumbling through it all and figuring it out. Um, how, what are, like, if you were to speak to the pastors listening right now, how do you, what would you share with them just to encourage them as they continue this journey? Cause it's not going away. Yeah, no. Um, well, one, I would just kind of commend you to courage. You're going to need it. Um, and, and then I, I think if you're just really honest, most of the time it, you, you got a fighting chance. And so what I mean by being honest is you can talk about, Hey, I know that this is an issue that causes 
uh, a lot of passions. And, and I think on this issue in particular, you're going to have to clarify what you're not saying, um, which is like, th- this is, it's an addition um, to preaching in 2020 with the algorithm um, creating so much dissension is you have to say, we can very, very, very much care uh, about ethnic reconciliation and harmony and, and owning sin that's not ours, like Daniel did, and and not at the same time uh, ascribe to this organization or uh, agree with this aspect of how the world's tackling this subject. And you've got to be able to say that now, because if you don't say it, people are going to misconstrue what you're saying uh, with something that I honestly think is either demo- a demonic ideology or certainly lacks the future vision of the kingdom that the Bible gives us. Hey, I want to take this opportunity to encourage leaders that are watching right now to go ahead and put your questions in the chat. Uh, in, in just a few minutes, we're going to start the audience questions to Matt, but go ahead and put your questions into the, the chat. And well, Matt, I- I'm... Brooks has, Brooks has a great question that I, I'm happy to answer. So, so Brooke asked the question in the chat, uh, how to navigate language and affiliation. Uh, so how can we support the black part of Black Lives Matter without identifying with these issues that we cannot agree with as biblical Christians? Listen, here's where I would just, I would just have the courage to say it. And so I am preaching, let me give you the example. I am preaching this weekend. Like here's my iPad, sermon's done. I'm preaching this weekend on the high priestly prayer of Jesus, mainly the part where he's praying for unity for his church. Perfectly one is how he prays. And I am saying, what are our big threats uh, around this kind of unity? And, And one of them is race and the other one's politics. And one of the things I'm saying when I get to race is, here's what the word of God says about ethnicities. Here's what Jesus has already purchased for us. Here's where the Bible says that we should expose wickedness, that we should have nothing to do with the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but we should expose them. Now, this does not mean that we are in alignment with the organization Black Lives Matter. This also does not mean that we ascribe to critical theory. In fact, these are my notes. I, I mean, I'll be preaching this on Sunday morning. I will say, Go to Black Lives Matter webpage. Click on what we're about. Click on what we believe. What you will find there is untenable to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They they cannot, you cannot mesh what they're saying, what they believe, and what we say we believe into the same thing. So what we are saying is that the Bible cares about these issues and we're going to address them. What we're not saying is that we will agree with an ideology that does not have the word of God, the Bible's view, Revelation 7, by the blood of Jesus, in view. We, we just don't. It also means that, that we don't agree completely with critical theory. And so I'll say, this is personal opinion, I'll say that critical theory is really helpful in helping us understand how we got where we are. It helps us make sense of the past. It has no vision for the future. There's nothing in critical theory that can rival Revelation 7. There's just not. So I'm literally going to say that Sunday morning. Um, And so I think that by doing that and not kind of like, oh, let me be really careful. I I know I need to say something. Um, Man, your people's Facebook page, um, it's got them believing the second you mention race that you're a Marxist, liberal, um, Democrat. And, um, and where I am, that could get you killed. And so, but what I'm telling you is if you'll just say in a loving way, here's what, like, I just push everybody, have a doctrinal conversation about this issue. Have a doctrine, look, the Bible over and over, anytime you see the word nations, anytime you see the word peoples, anytime, like the Bible's talking about ethnicities, people groups. When it, I mean, the, the frequency at which I'm about to study or I'm about to preach Revelation in the spring, and man, that, that whole 144,000, that's the Lamb's army. And so he heard 144. When he turned around, what did he see? He saw the nations. So that the Lord's army, the army of the Lamb, is an army made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on earth. Now that'll preach, and that has to do with ethnicity. And, and the book of Ephesians, if it's not just 
oozing out opportunity to address this. If Jesus's parables, every time he's, you know, the good cement, we could just keep going here. Preach the text and then be clear what you're saying. Uh, otherwise, like we've had people leave our church. They're like, ah, oh, man, Chandler's gone left. He doesn't care about the word of God anymore. I mean, that, I think that's inescapable. But one of my regrets is I didn't say what I just said here, that I didn't say that sooner at the village. I wish I would have said it more quickly than, than I did. But part of it is I needed to figure it out myself. I needed to read myself. And I also think if you're a pastor, you can ask for some grace and some patience and, and that you know these are difficult things, but you want to, with them, uh, get there. And so, Matt, just to take what you just said and, and super practical now, let's, I want to get inside your head of how you handle from a witnessing standpoint in the spirit of this question. So let's say you're hosting a NBA basketball party at your house. Neighbors are coming over, you know, for the championship thing. And you're all watching the game. And, you know, on the sideline of the thing is Black Lives Matter. And one of, you know, a conversation ensues amongst your neighbors about the Black Lives Matter and it, you know, they're going back and forth. So as a Christian, trying to walk this line the way you just laid it out biblically, how do you engage that conversation with the group? Recognizing it's not a primary issue, but it's also an emotional issue. So, yeah. So what I would want to do is almost immediately tease out what exactly we're talking about. Are, are we talking about that, that Black Lives Matter? Or are we talking about the organization that Black Lives Matter? And who's who, who are we talking about right now? Um, because I would say, let's not throw out the phrase. I know that people think just throw out that phrase and you don't have to. But I think there are some things um, that, that the power of them in a given moment for a generation is important. And so I don't want to get rid of the phrase. It would be easier if we could get rid of the phrase. But even, and even like guys that are far more hardline conservatives than I am um, have argued that way. Like Al Mohler argued that way. Like Al Mohler's like, this is a good phrase. This is not a good organization. Um, but uh, when all said and done, I want to get to the bottom of that. And, and then I want to just start asking questions like in my context where, where everything's heated. Uh, I would just try to ask questions and lead the conversation to a given place, namely a vision for the future where this problem has been solved and the way to approach that in a way that gets us closer to revelation seven than civil war. Got it. Thanks. Awesome. I got another question that came in, Matt, I'll uh, share with you. It's from a leader named Brandon. He said, would you recommend instead of discussing BLM, discussing biblical models that are rising around justice, like the AM campaign or be the bridge? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I think because of the day we live in, I think you've got to do both. Uh, I think you could say what I said about BLM and then go, now let me show you some organizations that yeah. do share our view of the future that, that acknowledge that Jesus has made the way here and that when all said and done, this is what the, what human experience will be. There will be one new man in Christ. But until then you've got that little passage in Ephesians that says, do not participate in the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Uh, and so until that day we work towards that end. And, and I think this makes sense to anyone who, is serious about their love for the Bible. So we, we know from the Bible that Jesus died on the cross for those who are going to believe in him. But that doesn't mean we go, well, since Jesus did that, let's not share the gospel with anybody. No, we get out and we share the gospel with anyone and everyone knowing that they're going to be saved. So in the same way, we know that Jesus's blood created one new man. Now, what does that look like? Well, we work to that end. And, and so um, I think you have to do both um, and not one of those but it's a good one to punch. Matt, I want to uh, circle back to your definition that included the advantage and the immunity for a second. And um, this is kind of a two-part question. You can answer them separate or together is fine. But um, we, I, I think a lot of us, because of the emotion around the word privilege, white privilege, um, it, it just can be negative, you know, entirely. If, if I look for a second, I, I'm going to make the assumption that privilege actually has a positive and negative. I mean, like a lot of things, there's a positive and a negative side to it. So could you address the following? I mean, even out of Ephesians or from wherever you want, 
My devotion this morning was Psalm 139, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And when I really reflect on the idea of the uniqueness of each of us, our individual uniquenesses, and even in that fabric of the mosaic of Ephesians 4, the uniqueness of each of us gives each of us advantages and gives us some immunities naturally that can either be used for positive or negative. Yeah. So could you address not just the negative side of privilege, but what's the positive side or the stewardship side that helps us bring a proper definition into focus, if that makes sense. So now you're getting into the gospel, right? So I, I think anyone at any given time has some level of privilege over maybe somebody else in their yeah. their given area, mm-hmm. um, and so and and that's true. Uh, like there would be like poor African American people who have some privilege over other poor African American people, and poor white people who have more privilege over right. So so there everybody has it. What Jesus is going to call us to is a laying down of privilege uh, for the glory of God and, and the beauty of the gospel. And so whatever privilege we have, and, and man, if, if that scales one to a hundred, I'm, I'm happy to say some people have a hundred on that scale and some people have like one. And, and yet whatever privilege we have, the call of Jesus is to die to ourselves um, so that we might actually live. And, and so what I want to call people to, when I talk about privilege, and, and I don't want to just talk about white privilege, this is not just a white issue. This is an issue of privilege across the board and how it's considered and stewarded. And so if we would all collectively um, understand, okay, this is the, the privilege that I have. Uh, I've been educated to a certain point, or I've been given these natural abilities, or by the grace of God, this is my family line. So I inherited, um, like in our kind, this barbershop, and, and man, it's doing well right now. And I Okay, how do I steward whatever privilege I have, however little, however small, so so that I might die to myself, lessen that privilege. I must become um, less, he must become greater, I must become less, so so that the the beauty of Jesus might shine through us saying, this privilege is not the point of my life. There's a greater point in my life. And and so that is, I think you can preach that way and very few people are going to get offended by that. Now, there might, be, there might come a time to directly address white privilege in particular. And I find that that comes out most often um, when, when whites get really rigid towards there being any benefit at all uh, in being an Anglo-Saxon. Yeah, it's ironic you say that, uh, Matt. The question Bethany just put in here is, how do you address Christians who don't believe in white supremacy or systemic racism? Man, that's a great, great question. Um, here's what I would say, Bethany, and I guess to everybody else who's listening. I, I think I want to get to, let's define those terms. So I was just sitting, this is my little at-home office above our garage, and I sat here with one of our members a couple of weeks ago, and we was talking about, it was a great conversation. Um, he, like in his, when he heard the, 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 the phrase systemic racism, what he thought that was talking about, um, was a, a group of powerful white elites somewhere that were um, that were building systems and structures in order to hold uh, other people in check. And I was like, no, no, that's not that's not what systemic um, injustice or racism is in any way. There's a and then we just walked through the Bible and we looked at how um, Israel would behave in certain ways when it had. Uh, idols instead of God as their greatest treasure, and that there are sins of a nation, and that there are systems built in the nation that that started out for good, that got twisted over time because of the sinfulness of man. So a lot of times, the systemic racism can't even be seen by the people that are in the system. Like the priests, they were given terrible sacrifices at the temple in the Old Testament. I don't, I don't know that they know in that moment that what they're doing actually is contrary to the word of God. Gosh, the Bible vanished for a few hundred years until Josiah and them found it in the temple. There was no way for them to even know that what they were doing was wicked in the sight of God. And, and so sometimes it's just, let, let's talk about, like, when, when you say systemic racism, what do you think I'm talking about? And man, my, my guy a couple weeks ago was telling me there's a group of very wealthy, influential, powerful white people that are trying to keep black people down. And I was like, no, no, no I, don't, I don't think, 
that's what that means. I, I think as Christians, our theology is that humankind is sin, is, their heart is sinful um, until it is redeemed in Christ. Now, what kind of systems do sinful people build? Do they build righteous systems or do they build sinful systems? Well, well that's why even the reformers talked about always reforming, that, that every system needs to be reformed from the police to the government to the education system. Everybody needs to grow until we're into God's good design, which by the way, we don't get to this side of glory. We get to move the needle a little bit, but until Christ returns, this is the work. Hmm. Matt, if, um, if we were kind of looking at, uh, again, I'm going to keep coming back to unpacking definitions here, just getting things where we get a better understanding. Um, if we're looking at causes for a minute, you, you've brought up multiple times socioeconomic things. Yes. So let me just press in for, and, and, and I don't want to limit this part of the conversation just to that, but it's one example of a co- possible cause of privilege yeah. as well as many others. So let's just start with socioeconomic for a minute. Is And I realize it's looking into a little bit of a future thing, but if somehow we could snap our fingers and there was truly whatever it means to have economic equality in this country, like if there's economic equality across ethnicities, does it, does that take away the issue of privilege at that point for the, or 90% of it? Or where does the socioeconomic part fit in the privilege conversation? So I do think socioeconomics are a pretty big part of the conversation of privilege, but I don't think, and I think history shows us this, and I think the Bible confirms or, or maybe the Bible teaches us and history confirms would be the better way to say that, um, is that, that money won't solve the issues of the human heart. And so even if um, you still have family dynamics that are a massive part of this, and not all family dynamics disintegrate because of money issues, right? Um, so there's a lot more than just socioeconomics involved. Um, and, and we know this in church planning. Like one of the things you can talk about in church planning is you give the wrong guy a million dollars, he'll still fail. You give the right guy a hug and a prayer and, and he'll crush it. And, and so, so there are disparities, not just in finances, but in natural giftedness. And there's disparities in family of origin and what generational sin looks like. There are disparities in, uh, I mean, we could just keep going here. Yeah, so socioeconomic is a massive piece. I don't want to take away from that piece. Socioeconomics gives you a better shot at a quality education. It, it just does. And if you've got a quality education, um, all of a sudden you're not, I don't know if anybody read um, David French's um, article on uh, critical theory, but one of the illustrations that he gave in that is that the way um, um, like well-paid education works versus, you know, uh, barely can pay teachers education works is night and day different. And then the way they'll address a student's problem then is night and day different. So if you're in a school where uh, there's not a police presence, um, you know, then because you've got enough money for your own private security and your own uh, parents are involved and you're right, like, um, and you get in a fight, well, the police aren't there to charge you with assault for that, right? It's just, man, there was, there was a fight today and all it was was a fight and you're going to learn from this and you both have in-school suspension for the next three days versus a lower income school with a police officer to keep the peace who now it's assault. Now you're actually going, um, you know, you, the police are involved now versus just the security guard that took you to the principal that, and, and so I'm trying to communicate. There are so many different factors here that although socioeconomic is a huge block, it's not the only one involved here. Uh, Matt, I'd love to ask you just uh, from a, maybe a next-gen perspective. Uh, I, feel, I often say, why is the most cause-oriented generation in the world right now not connecting to the most cause-oriented yeah. organization in the world right now, being the church? And um, I do think this generation, for better or for worse, I mean, I joke that sometimes they, they want to die to be a part of a cause, and the non-committal <laughs> side of them doesn't actually stay connected. And I don't know if you remember that Coney 2012 thing where it's oh, like, yeah. let's go find Coney and then – I mean, he's still out there. They just, yeah. if, then the ice buckets on their head. Now, now, a lot of times it can be unfortunately trendy to be cause oriented. However, I do, I think there's always an opportunity if this generation wants to be a part of something bigger than themselves or even a, 
community of sorts is what the whole Pokemon fad, if you remember, when all these guys trying to find Pokemon. I think I aged uh, out of that one, but I saw some of it in my area. <laughs> you saw them walking around? Yeah. yeah. I had but a t-shirt, but I didn't do the Pokemon thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> just like, man, how do we, uh, could you address maybe young, I see this a lot where it's like young Christians maybe struggling with, I want to, it's almost easier for them to join the cause for whether it's something in justice um, or especially this racial tension and a march or just be very plugged in and passionate about this. Sometimes it's easier for them to do that than the church. And even harder is when the church is silent on yeah. these topics. It can reinforce this idea is, man, the church is irrelevant to what's going on in the world. Sure. Um, yeah. How can you maybe address pastors when considering this to the next generation, but also speaking to the next generation as they're sifting through often sometimes joining causes that just are gospel less sure. um, and saying, coming back to, again, the most cause oriented organization in the world, the church. Yeah. So I think we've got a, a discipleship problem here. That'd probably be how I describe it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think the, um, the version of Christianity that says um, don't have sex before marriage and don't watch rated R movies um, and then spend the rest of your life trying to be a good person um, is the least sexy version of our faith imaginable. And it's yeah. hardly even recognizable as our faith. Yeah. And so when you, when you throw out to a generation and I think it, it started heavy with mine and, and I don't, where that what you want to cap on is the morality that God calls us to over and above the call that he has on our lives, then you, you neuter um, the, the power of the gospel working in and through men and women. And, and if, if my vision for your, like I got a 17 year old daughter, I've got a 15 year old son. I've got a, if the vision for their lives that I'm selling them is you can, you can be a morally pure person and you're like, there's just nothing about that that resonates with how God designed our souls to be. Now, now would I like my kids to ascribe to biblical ethics? Yes. And amen. But I think you get there by joining Jesus on what he's doing in the world. You don't get there just because you might get syphilis. Right. And that's been the kind of game we've played with these generations is, Hey, bad things can happen if you don't, adhere to this moral code. And, and there is something there. So I'm not trying to diminish that. Uh, I'm just saying that the call of God on our life is so much bigger than that. And so much more exciting than that to be called up into something and have your gift, how you're wired affirmed as a part of the, the great drama that's actually going on on a thousand different fronts and to call them into the great war and to, like there's something there that resonates with Gen Z and the millennials that, that, Hey, true love waits doesn't. And I don't think, please don't, I don't want an email from somebody on here saying, I'm saying throw away um, the biblical standards of sexuality, because I certainly don't believe that. I'm just wondering if that needs to be our lead foot. That's good. That's good. Matt, there's a, a, go ahead, Grant. What is kind of your hope for, I mean, you mentioned your kids. I think um, I saw uh, Audrey's, I think, about to graduate. And yeah. as you're thinking about them going into the world, what is kind of your hope for the next generation when, I mean, her generation, surpass, Gen Z surpassed uh, millennials, I think, two years ago as the most ge- diverse generation ever. And so sure. like, what, is, what is your hope as you're talking to your kids about uh, where you want them to be in this? Yeah, you know, my, my hope is that um, – they, they wouldn't get swept, swept away in the nonsensical parts of this period of human history. Um, and so we talk a lot about being rooted uh, and grounded in God's call on our lives and, and what God is up to in the world. And so it's not uncommon uh, for my daughter who is, um, she's really into barrel racing. She rodeos and uh, the environment she's in is, um, you know, it's got Jesus's name on it, but there's not a lot of Jesus there. And so we have a lot of conversations about what it looks like to be bold in those spaces and what it looks like to walk in humility in those spaces. And so I, for all three of my children, uh, what I want for them is to love Jesus deeply, to engage the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ authentically. Uh, and here's what I know. I know that's going to look in, it's going to look in ways that make me really uncomfortable as a Gen Xer, right? I mean, I mean, they, 
the way they approach, I can feel it. Like I can feel like my dad trying to get out of me right now. And it's like, no, hang in there. But at, you know, at, at 46, like I can't get in that world anymore, but I can cheer it on. Now I can't spot the beautiful things about it and cheer it on and be slow to pounce on what they perceive to be innovation. So Matt, if you were, uh, let's say you were planning a sermon like you've done for this weekend, but it, it was on the topic of privilege and specifically, why should it matter to us as Christians and what are we to do about it? Yeah. What, what, where would you be, I mean, what are your Bible references or where would you be going on that one? Yeah, so I, I think one of the places you can go almost immediately is Jesus's teaching of where you sit at the banquet. Like, like where are you going to sit? So what you want to do is you want to take the, the, the chair farthest from the seat of honor and then get moved up if the Lord so moves you up. Uh, I think another place that, that, that I love on this topic in particular is how often um, we're to die to ourselves. And, and Jesus kind of starts with this kind of come follow me. And, and then he kind of ends is, is, you know, unless you drink my blood and, and eat my flesh. And so there's this consistent call to die to yourself. Well, well what does he mean by that? Um, because we, we know that in, in other passages, we're called to love our neighbor like we love ourselves. So there's got to be some, some aspect of self-love there for me to, if I hate myself, I hate my wife, Ephesians 5, but I also hate my neighbor, uh, according to the great commandment. And, and so what does it look like to die to myself while truly being myself? And by that, I mean, who God designed me to be and, and then die to myself in a way so that the apostle Paul said, life might work in you so that death is at work in me. And, and then I would want to just give examples of what uh, that might look like in a given domain. Uh, and so if you're a businessman, that might mean that, that you free up some of your profits in order for um, your workers to participate in this or that, or it might mean that as a teacher, um, one of the things you're doing is you're repurposing some of your time during the day to minister to however your school district will allow you to minister to kids that are in a difficult place or in a difficult time or in a difficult spot. How do you, how do you sacrifice in order um, to, to help people see the beauty of Jesus Christ. And that's what it's a call to sacrifice. You can take any of the sacrificial texts and, and preach privilege out of them. Yeah. Hey Matt, we have a really good question. I think uh, it's interesting. I grew up my whole life in Louisville, Texas, uh, as you know, home of the, right down the road, baby, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, it's a really unique uh, position where it's like flower mound is predominantly a white neighborhood uh, Louisville and is really this like diverse place surrounded by a lot of predominantly white neighborhoods. And there's a question in there, Joel, she said, uh, he said, um, what do we do and how do we call people to diversity when we're in a predominantly white neighborhood or what they put was in a place in the rural area where it's maybe 90% white. How do we call people to yeah. diversity? No, that's a great, and Grant knows where I am. He's right. Louisville's right down the road from us and, and is far more diverse than, say, where I am in Flower Mound, Highland Village, Argyle. We are in that probably 80% Anglo, maybe even higher than that, 85, yeah, 88% yeah. Anglo. And, and so I don't know that at the end of the day, the, the goal is a diverse congregation if it's not possible in a location. Yeah. What the goal should be, though, is an increase in biblical ethnic IQ. Um, yeah, and, that's really and, good. And so what I want for the, like, what's funny about the whole multi-ethnic movement is that the touchdown keeps moving. And so when I first started talking about this years ago, long before um, people got mad about you talking about it, that's what's wild, that the climate's changed so crazy that, man, I was talking about this when people didn't even get mad about me talking about it. And then all of a sudden, about eight years ago, people were freaking out. And I'm like, I, it's the same sermon from last week or last year with the new illustration. I've been doing <laughs> this for years. And so um, what I'm fighting for here, I don't think the Village Church will ever truly be a multicultural church unless, unless something radically changes about our area. Now, we have a massive influx uh, of East Asians right now. And, and so we've got a shot there. Um, but... What I want is for the people, the men and women of the Village Church, to understand the biblical, ethnic, 
kind of, I want them to have a biblical ethnic IQ of what God is up to, what the nations mean in the Bible, what heaven's going to look like, what, um, what cultures, um, that all cultures have something to celebrate as the heart of God in them. And we should find that and celebrate it. And so that, that's the work I'm trying to do even at the village. Like people who hear me talk the way I talk would be surprised when they show up at the village that there's so many white people there. Um, but we are a predominantly white congregation. I think we probably always will be unless the area changes. So what I'm fighting for is a biblical understanding uh, of ethnicity. Yeah, that's good. I, I often, um, especially in Dallas, uh, there'll be churches in the suburbs. They're like, man, how do we build the Tuesday night? How do we get more young adults and young singles? And it's like farther than Frisco. And I'm like, they're not, they don't live there. Like, I don't, you want to be the porch, but they don't, you don't, that's, yeah. you have to be in Dallas. Like, yeah. it's, you can do the best you can, but I, I love that. Just, you have a posture of, I mean, maybe if young, young families come in, are you, are your people ready and prepared and excited to, yeah. to be a part of that? That's it. Matt, in our, sort of in our Western culture here, we're, you know, the pioneering spirit, the conquering spirit, the problem-solving spirit. I mean, oftentimes when we can focus our eyes on a hill to conquer or a problem to solve, we can make progress. So yeah. what, just for the average person in your church, let's say, what is it that you want them to be doing on this issue of privilege? Like what, for, for a lot of us that are white, I mean, I will confess, I don't wake up thinking every day with a posture of, okay, how am I privileged today? Or, you know, I don't go out to the store looking around for examples of where I'm privileged. So it does feel like there's an awareness and a posturing kind of thing that out of sight, out of mind. And in the absence of an intentional mission in my life to like solve the problem, how do I, what are you as a pastor wanting your people to do to keep this issue in front of them? Yeah, and I think I'll go back to something I already said. What I'm asking everybody at the Village Church to do is to um, lay whatever privilege they have down at the cross of Jesus Christ and to live in such a way that, that makes the most of Him. Um, and, and so that, that's how I'm calling Like, Because here's what I know about you, Todd. Um, just in the limited interaction we've had over the last 12 years or whatever, um, you are a man who wakes up and you, wants to make, you want to make much of the name of Jesus Christ you want to maximize your gift set. Uh, you want to be wrung out for the kingdom of God. Like, I know these things are true about you. Now, what's ended up happening now is because of the times in which God has placed you and the gifts that he wove into your mother's womb, Psalm 139, uh, both the form and unformed substances. Now, here you are, uh, a major player on the evangelical stage, and how are you maximizing your privilege? Well, here you, me, and Grant, and you and Ephraim, and next week, uh, Leonce. I mean, here we're doing it. And, and so at, at, a, at, at a level away from the stage, it works the same way. We're calling people into godliness. We're calling people to die to themselves. We're calling people, because Jesus does, right? We're calling people to live out the gospel wherever they are. And then this starts to play out at, in those smaller places like this. I'm a big form good relationships, seek to understand this is a part of what it means to be a Christian, that we're going to give the benefit of the doubt. Uh, we're going to jump to conclusions. You know, we're not going to fill in gaps negatively as best we can. Uh, and so, brother, I, I think like you, you don't wake up thinking about privilege, but you're so in tune with Jesus, brother, that, that here you've had the opportunity and you took it because you're going to take some shots from making these videos and putting this out there. Like you're going to, lose followers, you're going to lose influence, you're going to, and you've chosen to do it. Uh, and that's you laying down a privilege that you were given because you believe in something bigger than yourself. So, so I would just use you as an example here, brother, of yeah, you didn't wake up thinking about privilege today, but you've already laid your privilege down and you've been laying your privilege down um, through exponential since I've known you. Because this isn't the first tough topic you've tried to, to tackle. I mean, I've been in some awkward rooms in exponential. I mean, some awkward rooms. <laughs> and, and you guys have always been willing to uh, address the hard thing. Um, and that's you, brother, loving Jesus. So you're not thinking about privilege. You're thinking about Jesus. You're thinking about his kingdom. You're thinking about his church. And then you use where you've been put to, to leverage that privilege for the glory of Jesus. That, that's how I would answer that, man. Mm. 
I don't want people waking up going, oh, I'm privileged. I, gosh, I just, that, that's not the wrestle I want you in. The wrestle I want you in is how do I leverage the place God has placed me, the gifts and abilities he's given me, my economic resources for the kingdom of God. Last question for me, um, and even before I say that, I just, again, want to thank Tom. I think almost every time I am thankful, again, that you even are creating this series, uh, Matt, for you, often for years being a vocal voice. Um, I know it's not easy to, it's like me, you said, hey, there's usually a panel. How many racial reconciliation panels have there been at almost every conference? And usually they need a black guy. I get to be the Mexican guy. There's a ah. white guy and an Asian guy. <laughs> Um, yeah. And the white guy is not the fun seat to be in. Um, and no, it takes a lot of uh, thick skin and uh, a, a soft heart too. And so thank you all for what you're doing. I, my last question for me is um, I, I want to bring this up because Barna just released this study a couple of days ago, actually, that uh, they said they asked in 2019, these were uh, self-identified white Christians. They asked the question, how motivated are you to address racial injustice in our society? Um, of the group, uh, 11% of the group said not at all motivated in 2019. And um, now 2020, they just got the new study for this year. And now it went from 11% not at all motivated. And I was surprised by this to 22% not at all motivated. And I actually thought it would go up because, and what I would love you to address is two groups that I've seen maybe increase. The group that is not at all motivated, um, that are white evangelicals, but also there are, I've been very encouraged to see, and I'm sure y'all have seen as well. There's a lot of white evangelicals that this year has been a big breakthrough year mm-hmm. of saying, ah, I see it. I mean, to see the NFL apologize um, for Colin Kaepernick and to see, I mean, if you can't watch sports today without seeing groups that are like, we are, we realize that we gotta, we gotta pay attention and, and there is something there. And so uh, maybe for the new white evangelicals that are like, what do I read? What do I learn? What do I do? Um, that is a growing group that's like, I want to I be a part of helping and, and stewarding my privilege. And then what do you say to uh, the group that's like, this is just decreasing my motivation even more to be a part. Yeah. I just want to shut down or isolate from this conversation. Yeah. So I think to the group that um, wants to be involved, wants to get in, I think we've already mentioned a couple of them. Love Bridge Builders and Latasha. Love Justin with the AND campaign. There are those out there. What you're looking for is an organization that's serious about this issue, but is deeply rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that, that would be, that would be the answer to the first one. The second question, and and I'm actually experiencing this more and more. um, And it's why it's probably the driving motivator for me to say what I'm saying this weekend is if, if a 15 year old white kid um only hears from the organization black lives matter like what why would he ever be motivated to um give away his influence give away and i'm talking about non-christians here i don't know if was the barna study christians it was christians yeah yeah so my guess then is you've got a group of people that don't can't see how the gospel is in this and how we get to revelation 7 from there uh, and there, they might, there might be some things that need to be corrected in that 20-something percent. But I think if you feel like you can't win and you feel like there's no room for you in the house and you feel like, and right now, I'm like, I'm, I mean, I know some militant black brothers and sisters be like, yeah, that's how we felt for the last hundred years. Yeah, but now you're outside of the gospel. You're wanting to punish, not reconcile. You, you're wanting, right? Now you, you've left. And that's what I'm, I, I went on a rant on Mother's Day. And I said, when Christians turn this issue over to demonic ideologies and then complain about it. I mean, that's just not fair. It's just not fair. Like this is our inheritance. Jesus is the one that solved this. The world can't solve it. It won't be legislated into being an organization like BLM is not going to pull it off. This will take the church of Jesus Christ embracing what's been given to her. And I think when that happens, you'll see that, that 11% go down to next to nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And Amen. Matt, you, I mean, you know this because we've talked about it a couple of times. I mean, for Exponential, we have shifted our entire fall programming. I mean, it, yeah. we've never done anything like this in our 15, 16 year history um, where we've shifted from our normal programming. We, we were in John 17 together, but now it's more a together pursuing more of the racial reconciliation. So we've got 
over 100 roundtables this fall. And at the core of that, what, what it kind of fits this, the Barna narrative, I think, is we absolutely are seeing and hearing to the degree, you know, let, let's make a customer here the white pastor in the suburban area for a second. Um, yes, there's a percentage of them. There's no such thing as white supremacy. There's no such thing as no such thing, no such thing, no such thing. And I don't know that we're going to just overnight shift a mindset like that. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got guys like yourself that, hey, this is a gospel issue. You're in it. You've been talking about it. And we absolutely are seeing in the middle of that curve then is an absolute growing number of leaders who are saying, yes, there's a problem. I don't know how to solve it. Yeah. I don't even know how to engage it. But I would like to be able to lead my congregation in a right way. I mean, I think that's a posture of a growing number of people. Yeah. What's a little bit troubling about the Barna study, and I, I'm sensing it in our work at Exponential right now. Um, I had a job one time that the, the, it was one of those jobs that the way we said it was, you can't win, you can lose, and you can't quit. So you can't win, you can lose, and you can't quit. And, and I think we really are at a critical time right now where you've got a growing number of pastors who want to engage and be part of the healthy conversation. But I hate to say it, they feel like with what they see going on in division and the way the conversations are going, they feel like I can't win. Yeah. I can lose if I open my mouth the wrong way or if I don't open my mouth Yeah. and I can't quit. And so what does that cause somebody to do to be paralyzed on the sideline? It, it, it absolutely will produce the result that the Barna study is showing yep. kind of thing. So the question is, how do we help Matt Chandler 10 years ago or 15 years ago? How do we help the pastor who says there's a problem and wants to engage to not feel like, oh, my goodness, I may lose my job if I open my mouth. How do I engage this, I think, is our challenge. Yeah, well, the, the hard thing is, is for quite a few people, maybe even some that are watching us, to open your mouth on this is to lose your job. And yeah. even in my MLK talk, I was like, I, I can feel the weight of what I want to say today because I know that some of you, this is going to cost you your job. Um, and I, I'm so supported by our elders in this space. Um, but part of that is also because we have an African-American elder, we have an Indian elder or East Asian elder, we have a Brazilian elder. So it's not just a group of white guys that are frustrated with me, but we've learned from one another, encouraged one another, had these conversations. I think I have got out above my skis before in the early days where I was a little bit further ahead than I needed to be our congregation. And that's, I mean, we could do a whole talk on regrets, but, um, but the, at the end of the day, I think the best a pastor can do is be faithful to the word of God in his local congregation. And, and, and that means sometimes you, you, you contextualize what you're saying to who's in front of you and you don't worry about social media and what somebody else is saying and how they're saying it because God's given you a people to shepherd. And I think the Bible addresses ethnicity so often that, that even if you just try to preach through a book of the Bible, it's coming up. Like, again, you, you see, I mean, you see nations, you see peoples, you, you, that's talking about, you see Jew, Gentile, you see Samaritan, all of those are opportunities for you to address what Jesus has done for, for the, the varying ethnicities on earth. And man, I always love to point out how it ends, no matter how difficult it is. Here's what I know happens. I mean, I can't tell you how often I make people open up to Revelation 7 and let's just read it together. And then even as I prepped to preach Revelation this spring, ran into that, uh, the army, the Lamb's army, the 144,000, at least that's what he heard, 144,000. But when he turned and looked, what he saw was men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation on earth, mighty with banners. And, um, and there it is again, right? And so I, I think local church pastor needs to talk about these things doctrinally, not socially. He, and he needs to not do it just when things are bad, that, that he needs to speak about it enough. And he needs to help people understand how it is tied to the gospel, that it's not the gospel 
but it certainly is an implication of the gospel. Again, the Bible helps us with that. Why does Paul rebuke Peter? Because his behavior was out of step with the gospel. That's Paul. That, that's the Bible, right? So that when Peter refuses to eat with, with the, the Gentiles, Paul rebukes him, confronts him to his face. Why? Because when I saw what he was doing, was out of step with the gospel and nearly led Barnabas astray, I confronted him to his face. So again, it's there in the text. Just preach the Bible. Don't avoid it. Pay attention when you see those words and take advantage of it. Mm. Well, Matt, I want to thank you for being with us. Grant, as always, thank you for joining in. Um, we, I don't think we've said it much on past shows, but just to highlight for everybody, we do have these hundred roundtables this fall. Um, the hundred roundtables are in cities across the United States. It is the most diverse lineup of speakers we've ever had. Uh, over half of the speakers are people of color, um, men and women. And uh, also with these roundtables, we're creating a resource kit called Divided No More, uh, immediate access online. Uh, that'll be over a hundred different TED style talks, book reviews, uh, different things. I see your picture there, Grant. See, Grant Skelton's one of our uh, our speakers there. Handsome. And, and uh, I just want to encourage people, multiplication.org forward slash roundtables. It's both for the roundtable events and this resource kit uh, that's out there. And uh, it, it's probably the most work we've ever put into something in our history. So just want to encourage people to take advantage of that. So, and we will see everybody next week. Matt, thank you again. This fall, Exponential is hosting roundtable events in cities all across America. These half-day gatherings in smaller settings will allow church leaders to prioritize peer-to-peer -peer conversations and receive practical training on how to prepare their church to lead for racial reconciliation. Exponential roundtables will help you continue to pursue church multiplication in these challenging times. Find a roundtable near you this fall by visiting multiplication.org.